Good evening and welcome to the show. Well, two months ago, Federal Treasurer Jim Chalmers published an essay in the leftist monthly magazine outlining his vision for Australia in the wake of the third crisis to hit us in 15 years. The first crisis was the global financial crisis of 2008. The second was the self-inflicted COVID panic that started in 2020. And now the inflationary crisis that threatens many liberal economies. The first two crises had changed us, Chalmers said, and he asked, quote, what could we learn that might guide us in 2023, unquote. By we and us, he doesn't mean you, he just means himself, his fellow Labor ministers and the people they appoint to influential positions. The jargon in Chalmers' essay conceals his true agenda to redefine what values Australians, that means you, should embrace. Quote, now it's time for Democrats to understand that economic inclusion is fundamental to the health and democracies and the safety of nations. There will always be bad actors and bigots, but they will only find widespread public support if the political economy is failing the people. By failing to put the values at the forefront of how our economies work, we also leave behind reams of wasted talent, a degraded environment, and social dislocation." Unquote. Since when did a treasurer need to worry about bigotry? I thought he just needed to balance the books. If Chalmers is as authoritarian as his essay makes him out to be, it's not at least through malice. He is a decent bloke and he still lives in Logan, the outer Brisbane electorate where he grew up and his intentions are good to a point. He wants to find his political career as quote, from the suburbs, of the suburbs and for the suburbs. Unquote. That paraphrasing of Abraham Lincoln's line from the Gettysburg Address makes a telling mistake. Chalmers is of the suburbs, but he's not by the suburbs. In the essay, Chalmers says, quote, democracies will prevail if we, if we rely on their inbuilt strengths, unquote. But the strengths that built democracy in Australia, such as individual freedom, economic choice, personal responsibility, and a collective set of moral values, don't get a mention in his essay. Instead, Chalmers says we must devise, quote, again, ethical and practical incentives for leaders to govern in ways that improve the lives of people, unquote. Well, to Chalmers, government is all about making decisions for other people because he knows what's good for them better than they do themselves. Yesterday, we saw the first major step in his plan to transform Australia away from its traditional strengths. It was the release of a report that will modernise the Reserve Bank of Australia and potentially pave the way for the government to decide how you spend your money based on how good you've been in its eyes.
But first, let's go back to May, uh, to that May 22 last year, the day after the election that made Chalmers the new federal treasurer. Chalmers suddenly realised that the promises they had been making until 24 hours earlier might not be so feasible. He told nine newspapers, quote, We want Treasury and Finance to go through the budget line by line. We want to separate the commitments that might be worthwhile and useful from those that might not, unquote. In other words, now that the election is out of the way, the real agenda can begin. There's nothing unusual about this. It happens with depressing regularity after elections in Australia. But on this occasion, the change of direction is radical. Two months later, Chalmers commissioned a review of the Reserve Bank of Australia by three economists, including Labor apparatchik Dr Gordon De Brewer. To be fair, the review had been promised during the election, but it was hardly a prominent policy. And besides, few voters would have realised just how radical such a review could be. To quote again from Chalmers' essay in the Monthly in February, quote, 2023 will be the year we build a better capitalism, uniquely Australian, more confident and forward-thinking, more aligned with our values, unquote. Well, those are Chalmers' values, but as you'll see in a minute, they aren't necessarily yours. The Inquiry's report, published yesterday, made 51 recommendations. Chalmers agreed with all of them. Now, we want to make sure that Australia's monetary policy framework delivers the right decisions and makes the right calls for the Australian economy and for the Australian people. That's what has been motivating uh, this report, the work of the review panel and the thinking of the Albanese government for some months. Now, the government agrees in principle with all 51 of the recommendations made in this report that I'm releasing today. The recommendation that grabbed all the headlines was the one saying the Reserve Bank should be relieved of its responsibility for setting interest rates and that, and that job should be given to a new board, the Monetary Policy Board, which will meet only eight times a year. Three of the board are from Treasury and the Reserve Bank. The other six are recommended to the Treasurer, who then appoints them. These people will indirectly decide the interest rate of your mortgage at every stage of the electoral cycle, including in the months leading up to a federal election. There's no evidence that Chalmers himself would allow this to influence his decisions on who to appoint to the board, but he is proposing to introduce a process where it is possible for subsequent treasurers to do so. The recommendations also included this. Quote, the RBA should continue to integrate the implications of climate change for the Australian economy and financial systems into its analysis and contribute more generally to the effective regulation of banking and finance on climate risk and natural capital management through the Council of Financial Regulation Regulators and International Forums, unquote. Well, the report says that the best way to do this is through fiscal policy, which is essentially just how the government taxes us and spends our money, as well as regulatory policies. The word it uses here is targeted, 
as in targeting specific types of taxes and government expenditure. And this is where the idea of a central bank digital currency comes in. This is a radical, uh, central bank digital currency is a radical departure from conventional money. It will still change hands just like normal money does, but it is also programmable, meaning it could be restricted to be used only, for example, on edible insects instead of meat, on an electric vehicle instead of a petrol powered one, or on clothes made from recycled materials instead of from recently shorn wool. This isn't idle conjecture. These are the values that Chalmers was talking about in his essay and which are buried in this new report's recommendations about climate change. India has already launched a central bank digital currency pilot program, as has China, United Arab Emirates and the Bahamas, among other countries. Reserve Bank of Australia Governor Philip Lowe, to his credit, says the benefits of a CBDC here are limited given the speed and efficiency of our current bank transfer system, which is also free. Quote, we don't think the public case is there, he told the Financial Review's business summit last month. But that doesn't mean it won't happen. Last month, the Reserve Bank itself announced a pilot program with partners from the finance industry would begin in the next few months. We are delighted with the enthusiastic engagement by industry in this important research project, said Assistant Governor Brad Jones. Of course he is. But are you? Were you even asked if, this, if you think this is a good idea? No. The elites simply decided it's good for us. Which brings us back to Chalmers' essay. Quote, in 2023, we will create a new sustainable finance architecture, including a new taxonomy to label the climate impact. Let me say that again, the climate impact of different investments. That will help investors align their choices with climate targets, help businesses who want to support the transition get finance more easily and ensure regulators can stamp out greenwashing. This strategy begins with climate finance, but over time, I see it expanding to incorporate nature-related risks and biodiversity goals." Unquote. Well, what are climate targets, biodiversity goals and nature-related risks? I'm guessing you, like me, have only a vague understanding of them and don't care much about them anyway. There are more important things to worry about, like paying the mortgage, getting the kids through school and keeping the car on the road. As I said, Chalmers' essay and his announcements this week have little in common with the values and principles that built Australia. There's a good chance this is not going to end well. Well, to talk about this, we have a new guest, PJ Cameron, whose uncle, Ross, was a minister in John Howard's government in the 1990s and whose grandfather, Jim, was the Liberal Speaker of the New South Wales Legislati Legislative Assembly in the 1970s. He's now raising a family in Launceston, Tasmania and works as a financial advisor. PJ, welcome. Thanks for having me, Fred. First, PJ, you're in your early 30s. You're a bit of an exception to your generation when it comes to environmentalism. Do you think the fear of the earth overheating is exaggerated? <laughs> I think, um, you know, I've got a background in 
finance and, and probably more politics, but uh, it's hard to know. But certainly the language is, uh, it's hard to, I suppose, discuss, debate, get a clear sense of. Um, and I think increasingly that um, topic, you've either got one view on it um, or you're kind of excluded from the conversation. So I think, yeah, I would, I would be sympathetic to that that um, that scepticism, definitely. Yeah. Well, do you think sh climate change should be a factor in fiscal or monetary policy then? Yeah. Look, I think even just touching um, back on your review of, of the Treasurer's um, article in the monthly, I think, you know, there's a real um, broadening out of the, of the scope of, of government fiscal policy in the way that they're talking and thinking about it. Um, I think definitely as a, as a country, we need to be aware of and considerate of sustainable um, practices and industry and how we how we do things and, and the impact that, that has. Um, but I think, you know, if you consider the language of, of his, his message is very strong on values and I think he correctly identifies a lot of the crises that we're facing in terms of inflation, cost of living, um, labour shortages and skill shortages. Um, but I think some of the prescriptions that he puts forward uh, are left field and they don't follow from his, his actual uh, diagnosis of the problems that we face. So one of the first things that he says is, to speed up the pathway towards the, the green economy. And I think, if anything, that probably presses us more into issues around supply chain constraints, uh, scarce availability of battery metals and all, all that type of thing, um, and actually works against some of the key, key crises. So I think, to your point, there is that more maybe ideological um, undertone in terms of the practice and the outworkings of the policy decisions that are getting made, um, even if um, you're the language is is constructive and broad and, and, and at a values level. Yeah, well, he's he's certainly meddling, trying to steer the economy towards this, you know, so-called green economy mm. and so on. I mean, that's not an efficient way to run an economy. Shouldn't the market decide what's best for the economy? Yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, I had the privilege of attending and speaking at a, a meeting of the Australian Shareholders Association up in the north of Tasmania earlier this week. Um, and I think it's a great example of civic engagement in these types of discussions. And one of the key roles of the ASA is to is to keep Australian listed companies um, accountable, kind of, kind of feedback from actual shareholders to be active voices in what otherwise can become, I think, quite um, unaccountable, you know, big organisations. Um, and and I think like most, you know, independent retirees, people that are thinking about how they actually get their investments working for them properly. Um, the key consideration, obviously, is, you know, does the actual financial case make sense from a budget perspective? Does the budget make sense? From an investment perspective, what is the risk reward? Um, and I think that's, I mean, that, even the degree to which ethical investment decisions are increasing, I think, in terms of the awareness of, of the broader public and certainly the conversations that I'm having with clients. Um, nevertheless, that doesn't take a backseat to the actual financial performance, which then gives people the options, which actually supports the retirement, which, you know, actually helps people address some of the issues that the Treasurer raised um, and actually provides the, 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 the money in the budget that we make the decisions around. So I think, yeah, I, I think increasingly there is an overlap and probably I would describe an overreach in terms of some of these value-based ethical considerations and potentially it's the um, tail wagging the dog in that sense. But yeah, what was the mood like at that meeting of shareholders, the Australian Shareholders Association, about the uh, the, the um, preoccupation that a lot of listed companies have these days with ESG, you know, with uh, with green and uh, and sort of woke um, uh, mm. policies or you know directions. 
Yeah, I think, and this is probably something that you'd you'd see as well, Fred, is that the most Australians, I think, are fairly pragma pragmatic people with real values. Um, and I think there's the the thing that we probably resent more is the the more patronising language that often bureaucracies and governments can have when they're talking to the public. Um, you know, we're obviously interested in good governance, sustainable businesses um, and the environmental impact that we have. Um, but ultimately, I think there's a question of um, and certainly, you know, both from a performance of, of listed companies and the government, its legislative agenda, um, do we actually have practical common sense decision makers at the helm who understand the trade-off and the tensions that we need to maintain to actually get good outcomes, broad social outcomes, not just ideological outcomes? Um, or do we have more bureaucratic, um, more ideological discussion happening than, than there really ought to be? Yeah, I think the, the main thing that Chalmers, and he's not alone, but people like Chalmers uh, misunderstand is what actually, what are the principles that, or, uh, that, that made this country what it is today? I mean, you know, mm. personal freedom, choice, responsibility, and a, you know, a common set of moral values. They don't get a mention in Chalmers' essay, and I don't think they're considered mm. much when he formulates these policies, don't you? Mm. Yeah, look, I, I agree with that, and I think that probably reveals some of the the uh, undertones of what's actually being said. Because I think, you know, like you, I, I particularly uh, with the Treasurer's approach has been personal, relatable, um, and I think certainly his um, essay was the same, and that's, you know, obviously appreciated. Um, but I think often in this day and age, there's a degree to which you need to read between the lines and, and the subtext of uh, what's being said and then the action that follows off the back of that. Um, and I think, you know, even if we reflect on some of the things that have been Im impacting in my world as uh, proposed changes to the, the superannuation balances of over $3 million. Um, and I think it starts to show that the government is looking for areas to, you know, raise taxes where they can. And that's probably creating a certain insecurity um, in, in certainly people that I have discussions with. Um, have you detected that, that and, have you noticed that, in, that insecurity increasing since Labor came in? I think there's there's always insecurity. You know, the, the, I would describe it as the pendulum swings. So, you know, you've got a legislative agenda, the pendulum swings, a new government's in place. Everyone expects that. That's fine. Um, I think uh, there is uncertainty, though, when, you know, we start to re-bring up issues like franking credit uh, rebates. What's the impact of that going to be? Um, caps on superannuation. And then, and certainly, like, in terms of the voices that get prominence, like I'm not sure if you've seen the recent Grattan Institute's report on um, superannuation, but some of the reforms that they're recommending are radical and, and I think would be in very bad faith to what has been, um, I, I guess, uh, promised or offered to retirees in, in, in the superannuation system environment. Um, I mean, they're, they're talking about uh, putting, slapping a 15% tax back on um, the uh, assets in the pension phase, which are currently tax-free. And uh, anyway, so, so I think there's probably more uncertainty around the voices that are getting prominence and coming through in some of the, the, the reform agenda. Um, and definitely, I think that the $3 million super cap, it won't affect a huge amount of people. But for those that it does, it creates an incredible amount of administrative um, burden. And that's yet to be worked out to see how they're actually going to implement it. Well, I think um, in, in places like the Grattan Institute and in the government, they, they seem to forget that this is actually other people's money. I mean... Exactly, exactly. And, and I think, you know, on that topic of values, you know, coming through in, in the reform agenda, like that's, in, you know, the, the sites are firmly on superannuation, it feels like, in terms of, you know, forcing super funds or uh, 
incentivizing super funds. He talks a lot in, in his essay around co-investment and cooperation, um, and you know, particularly in terms of the, the transition to renewable energy. And and I think the key thing there is, you know, in, well, the market's not supporting it because it's not sustainable. It's not profitable. I mean, that's the end of the thing. And the you know, impact investment is there as a niche. Uh, part of the market for people to be able to, you know, partner with more profit motive driven investors and, and get social outcomes. And that's fantastic. But I think the degree of there's, it's all, it's all intention. And, and I think you can definitely over, over egg. Um, it's all, it's all about, yeah, it's all about the feels. How do you think this is, this will, uh, <laughs> will pan out PJ? Do you think uh, Chalmers will get, uh, will be able to uh, stitch his values into, uh, you know, his policies as treasurer? And do you think we'll see a central bank digital currency? Oh, good question. Um, look, I think the values piece, I think it will. It's getting a run at the moment. I think it's been, they've been consistent in their application of it. I think it suits the government's reform agenda in terms of, uh, even if it's not, in my view, consistent, um, uh, with some of their their spending decisions and, and areas how they actually run the budget, um, and uh, look, I think in terms of a digital currency, uh, I think the globe and you know this is another issue of like, you know, what choice do we have? But I think as a world, we are moving more and more into a digital spaces, digital environments. I think increasingly legislation around cash holdings, uh, mandatory reporting, uh, anti money laundering, that type of thing, um, is is making cash very difficult to use. Um, and I think then once it's digitized, it's tracked, it's processed, and it becomes vulnerable to like highly centralized surveillance. And um, so, look, I think, I think the fears in that space are warranted, particularly given where our social discourse is going at the moment and kind of the fringe voices that get to participate um, in decision making. Um, and probably, yeah, I would, th I would say it's a matter of time. Yeah, yeah. My advice would be to buy gold. <laughs> Good on you, PJ. <laughs> Thanks for your time. Thanks, Fred. Thanks for having me. That's PJ Cameron, financial advisor from Launceston, Tasmania. When stories started to emerge in late 2021 that some Australians were suffering from severe adverse reactions to COVID vaccines and that the mainstream media were determined to ignore them, some people began organising their own ways to publicise what was happening. The first and still the biggest of those in Australia was the Instagram account Jab Injuries Australia, which now has 118,000 followers. It is heartbreaking to look at. It includes, for example, the story of Mel, a fit young mother of two kids who now needs a wheelchair to get around. Or Scott, a former personal trainer who suffered pericarditis as a result of the Pfizer jab, which restricted him to bed, leading to depression. He said, quote, I lost my relationship over this. I couldn't show up as a dad, partner or a friend. I lost everything that mattered to me. And Natasha, who had her first Pfizer jab in late 2021 and six hours later started to suffer chest pains and heart palpitations. The pain increased and she was put on painkillers. After a round of antibiotics, the pain went away and a doctor told her she could then have a second jab. She said, quote, for the last two weeks, I've had severe anxiety that I'm going to die and my kids are going to find me dead. End of quote. These are harrowing stories, but we should all read them. 
These so-called vaccines don't discriminate. These people and all the others who suffered adverse reactions did so only because they were unlucky. The anger in many of these stories is palpable. These people either trusted the government's assurance of safe and effective, or they were coerced into it just to keep their jobs. Well, I am pleased to say the founder of Jab Injuries Australia, Matt Jordan, joins me now in the studio. Matt, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Matt, explain to me how you started this account, Jab Injuries Australia. Yeah, uh, it just sort of happened out of nowhere. Um, I was trying to defend my own reasons for not wanting to get it because uh, I had friends coming after me who were really believing the narrative. Um, it got to the point where they were completely venomous towards me and the only way that I could defend myself was by showing people um, that people were getting injured by these vaccines. Um, so how did you find the, the case studies? Well, the, the, first, the first one I found was a girl called Sienna Knowles and she got uh, a fair bit of uh, recognition for her vaccine because she was, you know, young, she was fit, she was healthy, um, a model and um, yeah, so it really like blew up quite quickly for her. Um, and then from there, I saw like another five or so injuries. Uh, I did see injuries overseas, um, but when I saw those injuries, I was like, it didn't hit as hard as it did for me to see someone in our own backyard. I was like, yeah, well, this is really happening to us as well. And uh, so, yeah, no, I, I just collated uh, these injuries in one space on Instagram. Did you um, approach these people or did they come to you? No, I, I didn't I didn't approach anyone in the beginning. Um, I just collated them because like I was just doing it to show my mates that this is why I don't want to get it. And uh, yeah, really quickly I gained a few hundred followers, I think in the first week or something like that. And I was like, oh, okay. So I just called it Jab Injuries Australia and it just went, just blew up. Wow, yeah, yeah, well, it did take off. Yeah, really quickly. So uh, can you put some figures on how quickly it did grow? Oh, I think in the first three weeks, I was up to like 10,000 followers, and then it was like 30,000. 30, like my phone was just going off and like constantly. And then yeah. I, I assume you started getting uh, people approaching you with their own stories. Is that yes. how it evolved? Okay. Yeah, so we started getting people to send in their stories because we were like, oh, we've got to get these things out as quickly as possible. Um, but then, you know, we, it was like, okay, well, this is quite serious. And um, we started getting so many people coming forward that I was like, okay, well, we need to start getting more people to help us write stories. Um, we needed to work on our format, we, you know, to get it so that it was credible, like these, you know. Well, that's an important word to use because, and I, I have to admit, I've been following you for a long time too, but mm. I did notice early on that uh, credibility was an important standard for you to keep. How did you do that? Well, um, so like I said, in the beginning, people used to send in their stories and, you know, there'd be a couple paragraphs, just basically, yeah, you know, or they'd take a picture there in the hospital and, and then they'd say, oh, yeah, I've got this, this and that. And, you know, we'd take it on, we believe them, you know, because we'd speak to the people. Um, but, you know, after a while, it was like, all right, 
we want to take this to the next level. We want to get into the detail of these stories. And when you get into the detail of these stories, like it's really hard to deny that this is happening. Yeah, yeah. Well, speaking of denial, you had to use code words and symbols mm. for the uh, for, to, instead of jabs and uh, for, the, for the pharmaceutical companies. Why did you have to do that? Yeah, well, um, I think we were one of the first um, people or organizations to do that. And people like I was like I was watching all these other freedom fighters, uh, you know, that were also speaking up about or speaking up against the mandates. And a lot of their accounts were getting shut down time after time after time. And I was like, guys, like you got to <laughs> you got to start. I call it censor the censorship because um, in doing so, we were able to control our own content and uh, AI was unable to detect that we were spreading misinformation and therefore our account kept on growing. But surely a, a, an account dedicated solely to jab injuries would have triggered some sort of uh, alarm bells at the censorship office, wouldn't it? Well, I mean, like the thing is, we didn't trigger any of the warnings. Uh, it's like when you get flagged with any of those warnings, like there's something, there must be like something happening in the back end where um, it flags your account. And if your account gets flagged so many times, then, uh, then they can do something. They, like there's something that happens to your account. But without that, um, what can they do? Maybe there is someone, I don't know. Yeah, like, well, obviously you flew under the radar however you did it because it did grow. Now, yeah. while it was growing, the mainstream media was resolutely ignoring all this. What's your impression of the mainstream media now? Yeah, well, um, that's, a, that's an interesting one because <laughs> we, were, we were quite loud when, when this was in the heat of things. Um, and we used to do um, like these, we called them like community missions. And what we'd do is we'd send our community over to certain media platforms to go, hey, like this is happening, like we need help, like we need, we need you guys to listen. Um, so we sent, um, one day we sent a lot of people over to um, the project, uh, to their Instagram. And uh, we left them the most comments that they've ever had on their page. Um, and I asked everyone to be really respectful. Um, we weren't there to, you know, like say, you know, to, to attack anyone. We're just saying, hey, we need recognition. We need help. These people need help. Um, but yeah, they completely ignored us. I think in the first hour, it was one or two hours by, by memory, um, we left like over a thousand comments on, on one of their posts and they just completely ignored us. Well, you don't even have to approach them to know that they were determined to ignore all this. Mm. What, have, have you had any thoughts about why the media would have done that? Oh yeah, plenty. Um, <laughs> but you know, like I don't want to get into any rabbit holes, um, but yeah, I mean, yeah, I do think that there's something a little bit more sinister. I just don't understand how the people that are up the top that are supposed to look after us and, and know what's going on don't know what's going on when there's so many people. Like, it's just very obvious 
to us and you know our hun hundreds of thousands of us is very ov obvious like how can it not be to the people that are supposed to be responsible for us yeah yeah i've said it on this show before the the, the business model for the media used to be you know watch our watch our station or read our newspaper because we speak truth to power mm. on behalf of our readers and and uh and viewers but uh, i don't think the media plays that role anymore now you know better than most people how many serious injuries there are um how many do you think there are in australia well i wouldn't say that i know better than most people but um like i speak to people who 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 know um, like I've been told it's like 10 times the figure that's reported on TGA, uh, whether that's true or not. I can't that's around 20,000, isn't it? Is that right? Oh, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, um, okay, go on. Yeah, yeah. but um, I know it's high. I know yeah. it's high because it seems like almost every single person you speak to knows someone that's been affected, even if they don't know it. Yeah, yeah. Now, one of your youngest cases was 10 years old. Well, yeah, younger. We've had younger. We've had six-year-old. Yeah, so, it's heartbreaking. Um, so yeah. can you tell me the story about uh, one of these kids? Well, uh, I mean, I've, I've gone through so many stories. I can't tell you, like, everything in detail because I just, you know, like, I've moved on from writing the stories myself. But um, I know that the 10-year-old, um, he ended up in ICU. Um, he, he could barely walk um, and the doctors, they didn't really know what to do. They didn't think that it was anything to do with the, the vaccine as far as I'm aware. Um, but yeah, um, it's just like you hear the same thing over and over and over again. Um, we've had plenty of um, teenagers, just all ages really. Like just recently we put up a, I think she was, yeah, she was 14 years old. Um, and she had no reactions from the jab until a year and a half later. And she's, she was perfectly fit, healthy, no problems. A year and a half later, she's displaying exactly the same symptoms as we've, we've seen in countless other um, injured people. You, you recount these stories, uh, you know, <laughs> reasonably uh, um, calmly, Matt, but uh, how has all this affected you? Yeah, uh, I guess I'm, I'm a fairly resilient person myself. Like I've been through a lot of my own suffering. So um, I know what it feels like in some sense to feel isolated and like no one's there for you. So I've been able to be there for people, yeah. Well, speaking of being there for them, you're, you're trying to find solutions, aren't you? What's the, what's the strategy? Yeah, so, um, yeah, we are, like, I, I definitely want to speak about this and, and that we, we pretty much are the, the only um, organisation in the world that is offering a solution at the moment. There's no one, no one else has another so solution other than to fight the government. Um, and that's not something that we're interested in doing ourselves because we understand that it could take years. It could take years before we see any kind of help. Uh, and then it's, it's very uncertain as well because they're the ones that did this to us and we're expecting them to take responsibility for that. So in the next couple of years, while people are fighting the, the government to get accountability, uh, there's people that are dying and suffering right now as we speak. Yeah. So they need help right now. 
So and how are you going to do that? You've got a plan to you know, boost your, uh, your following, is that right? So, so. I mean, um, we're putting together a platform that is going to uh, bring together all the people around the world, like it, w with Jab Injuries Global. So we have a global infrastructure. We've got 30 other countries. Just to be clear, th this, this started from Jab Injuries Australia and now it's gone global, hasn't it? Is that right? Yes. Okay, yes. yeah. Can yeah. you explain how it grew into a global organisation? Yeah, sure. So it um, started in Australia. Um, I think uh, UK and Germany and... UK, Germany, Poland, I think Scotland got on board quite early as well. And um, yeah, we just, like, because my page was like much bigger than the others, um, they were sort of all asking me for advice on what I'm doing. And yeah, it just organically became Jab Injuries Global. And then since then we, we've gone on to have, you know, 30 other countries. That's phenomenal. Um, but your plan now for the, for the Australian branch mm -hmm. is to grow the uh, following and raise money. Is that right? Yes. Um, so we've, our, our concept is not to milk as much money out of people as we can. It's to get people that understand what's happening in the world together. And with very little effort, we're talking like 15 cents a day, um, we can take responsibility ourselves and help these people right now. Um, which, I mean, like, if we take responsibility for the government does, that's going to be a complete embarrassment to the Australian government. And it's a win to the people, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So how do people help you out? Okay. So uh, it's, it's very complex. It's, it's a simple idea, but it's very complex. There's a lot involved. So um, we're trying to create a, um, like an application. It's like a, a directory where you can have small businesses, services, um, you can sell things, you can, um, like secondhand, there'll be a dating site, there'll be, you know, all kinds of things. Like, it's like basically every single platform that you can think of all rolled into one, but for the people that know what's going on in the world. Um, I mean, like every single platform censors us anyway. So, right. you know, okay. you've Jeez. got that reason. You have, you have very high ambitions with this. But in the meantime, just immediately, if any viewers want to help, the people uh, in your on Jab Injuries Australia, how do they do it now? Yeah, so I mean, like this is where the platform comes into it. So everyone on our side of things is relying on donations. Like mm -hmm. everyone's fighting the government because they control the narrative, they control the money. We've got nothing on our side, nothing at all. So we need to figure out a way how to get money as a tool to help us not only uh, help the injured, but also our community as well. Because there's many people that didn't take the jab and have also suffered. Um, so we're trying to say, okay, like people need a reason to help the injured. So we're saying, okay, if you give us $5 a month, um, we're going, by the time we get to a million subscribers, um, we're going to give each person that shared their story publicly $5,000 worth of of OM services. OM is the name of the platform, which stands for One Human Right, Movement. so when will that happen? Well, it's already happening. So we've got 18, uh, almost 19,000 followers on OHM. Okay, so yeah. where do people go? To, to your website? Uh, it's, well, there's two websites. There's uh, jabinjuriesglobal.com right. and onehumanitymovement.com. Fantastic. Yeah. Matt Jordan, thanks so much for your time.
Thank you. That's the founder of the Instagram account, Jab Injuries Australia, Matt Jordan. Well, that's all from me tonight and for this week. Thanks for watching. Damien Curry's The Other Side, an excellent summary of the week's news, is up next at 8 p.m. If you want to follow us on Twitter, you can find me at, at Fred Paul, that's F R E D P A W L E, or follow ADH on ADH TV AUS. If you are looking for some of the best conservative commentary in the nation, go to adh.tv or our app where you can watch loads of shows by Alexandra Marshall, Daisy Cousins, Lyle Shelton, David Flint, Nick Cater, and of course, the great Alan Jones on demand. Or find us wherever you get your podcasts. ADH is the new home for common sense commentary, and there is no shortage of things to comment about these days. I'll see you on Monday at 7 p.m. Good night.